We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. On the streets of old Milwaukee was a young boy walking. Somebody needs to take this mic away from you. You never need to hold it again. It's always a hater in the group. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Brew Hoop Podcast. If you can tell by my voice, I am not Adam Paris, co-managing editor and co-dictator of Brew Hoop. I'm Riley Feldman and I am joined this week, as always, by my friend Kyle Carr. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I think this is going to be a good test. You know how like when you're a parent and you leave for the weekend and you like leave the like just leave the house with your like teenage children and just hope that they don't throw a massive party and like ruin the house. I kind of feel like this is our test right now. Like Adam decided he's going to go do whatever he needs to do, safe travels back Adam, and he's just going <laughs> to leave it to us and we have to make sure that the house isn't completely trashed. There's every possibility that we come out of this and we're going to get some sort of notification from higher ups that they just got to shut the podcast down. I don't know what it'll be. I don't know what we're going to say, but there's every possibility. This is the last broadcast for the Brew Hoop podcast. Uh, Adam, I believe, is in a car somewhere on the East Coast. Uh, We will get a report back from him, but he is out this week. So it's down to us. And we are going to start, as we do every week, by kind of looking back on the week that was Filled with three games. Uh, you guys already pretty much know how it went. Unfortunately, and somehow inexplicably, the Bucks lost to Phoenix on Monday, 114-105. Then they picked up wins against the Indiana Pacers and Charlotte Hornets. Indiana was 117-98, to and for Charlotte, it was 131-114. to Kyle, looking back on the week, was there anything that really jumped out at you besides the fact that somehow, someway, they lost twice against one of the worst teams in the entire NBA in the same season? Yeah, that that part I'm going to look back and be like, how in the world did that happen? But otherwise, I think all the games were kind of following the same pattern that we've slowly been seeing. You know, they start a little bit slow, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get their footing, it seems like. And then in the second half, they are able to create some distance, especially in the Pacers game. It was pretty close. Most of the game, I think it was like a four point lead at half. And all of a sudden, the Bucks are just in a double-digit lead. And then the same thing with the Hornets. That one looks like it was. It took until like the third quarter, and then it was really the fourth quarter where that was the turning point. Um, Giannis technical or whatever that garbage call was seems to have. It was the big thing that changed everything. But otherwise, a few things that I think is going to be interesting is the rotation and some of these slumps that we think like Chris Middleton and Nikola Mirotic are in. But you know, I think it was a. If you had told me two and one, I would have expected the Indiana game to be the loss just because Indiana always plays tough. But thankfully, they didn't have Sabonis. Still, Indy was hanging around. I don't want any part of them in the playoffs. But, you know, it's it shows how good how good this team is and how well coached they are that they don't have their best player, Victor Oladipo, and they're still comfortably still in the third seed. Yeah, we should clarify. Uh, we are recording Sunday afternoon. This is before the Spurs game, so we don't know the result of that. I think, Kyle, you said you expect to win. That's uh, a really rosy prediction, but we'll definitely go with that. Assume that when this comes out, there's another win, and the analysis we're giving you here is valid for that game as hey, well. I said they were going to be 4-0 going into <laughs> That's true. And that went up in flames with uh, 24 hours later. Yeah, that's a tough one. On Monday, I mean... It, it was difficult, the Utah game, just it was weird because of guys being out and you had like the jumbo lineup. And then you, then you go into Monday, you're like, okay, well, at least we have Phoenix to kind of end the road trip and end it on a high note. Four and one is not bad for a road trip, especially out West. And then, uh, you know, the game happens. But yeah, I, I agree with you that this week was notable, probably because of the guys that are struggling a little bit. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me and I haven't heard it talked about all that often about which quarters the Bucks perform the best. I would assume the third is probably when they perform the best, just historically throughout the season. I think each of the games this past week, they only end up getting to like 22, 23 points each second quarter, I believe. So it's not so much that they even start off really slow. I mean, maybe the first five minutes of the game, they might start off a little slow, but they'll kind of round into form as they go along. And then for whatever reason, I don't know if they just, they're relying on their subs a lot more. And so there's just not as much firepower, but it just drops off precipitously in the second quarter. So that might be something to keep an eye on. But I agree that kind of looking back, 
it was not really like a week you're gonna look back and be like wow that was unless of course we look back and say oh the call like for the technical foul <laughs> like maybe right. that'll be the <laughs> season defining moment but you know it was you get a win against indiana which was big like you said Sabonis is out obviously all not available as well but indiana is a really good team and to be able to put up 117 on one of the league's top defenses is you know it's a testament to the ability of the offense to continue to function no matter who the opponent happens to be. And what was positive about that one and something we'll kind of talk about a little bit more is the fact that, you know, for the first time in what felt like a long time, Giannis and Chris Middleton combined to actually put together a vast majority of the score. They, uh, Giannis scored 29 points, Chris Middleton, 27 points. Chris went eight for 15 overall, four and seven from three. And then immediately after that, Chris went right back into the rut. Unfortunately, I believe he shot four of 12 against the Hornets and then one of seven from three. And I think the similar kind of formula played out against Phoenix, where it seemed like every time Chris tried to drive for the basket, it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't there for him for whatever reason. I know Phoenix has a lot of length that gave him a lot of trouble, but anytime he kind of goes into the paints and, you know, while you're kind of react to this, I might go look at the stats, but it seems like as of late, he's had difficulty scoring inside, which is kind of a problem because even though he's not a majority interior scorer, just having more guys who are able to take advantage of the space and get in the paint uh, clearly is an important part of how this team plays. But uh, how do you feel about just kind of the way Chris is gone or is there anything of note there? Yeah, I was going to mention uh, when you were talking about the quarters. Uh, yeah, in Phoenix, Milwaukee only scored 23. And then in the third quarter, they scored 28. Fourth quarter, they only scored 23. So definitely struggling in the second and fourth quarters, which contributed to why Milwaukee blew that lead in the Phoenix game. Against Indiana, however, they scored 63 points in the second half, including 30 and 33 in the third and fourth quarter. But again, second quarter, only scoring 22. And then for the Hornets, it was a little bit better. They scored 31 in the second quarter. And then thankfully, 39 in the third, 37 in the fourth. So it's one of those where, yeah, the second quarter has not been kind to them lately. And kind of like what you just mentioned, the bench not having as much firepower, especially in the guard rotation. You know, Pat Connaughton isn't hitting shots, despite how much energy he's putting in and defending as best as he can. He's still not hitting the shots needed in George Hill. And Sterling Brown being injured, Dante DiVincenzo being out that Phoenix game. So kind of putting a lot on Eric, Eric Bledsoe and Malcolm Brogdon. But with Middleton, I I don't know what exactly is going on. And it's kind of weird because, you know, he, along with everyone else, just struggled miserably in Phoenix. But then you kind of have that Indiana game. You're thinking, okay, turning it around. Everything's better. It's, it's okay. But then, as you mentioned, it just goes right back to just a poor performance against Charlotte. And, I mean, Charlotte's been a team that Chris has done pretty well against historically scoring, and at least in the scoring department. So I don't know exactly to what extent Chris' struggles can be. I know Phoenix was very handsy and pretty aggressive with their defending and getting away with a couple of calls. So I don't think that helped with his rhythm. But I think it's just one of those that he's just someone that when he's in a rhythm, he's going to have great games. But, you know, if that rhythm doesn't come, then – kind of leaves Milwaukee a little bit shorthanded, at least in the scoring department, especially if Miritich isn't hitting shots or Lopez isn't hitting shots. I mean, Brogdon and Bledsoe have been consistent with their scoring, but, you know, it's Milwaukee kind of comes and goes with Middleton playing well. I mean, like I said, the Charlotte game being the exception. Yeah, I would agree. And I'd say this week, like you said, the off again, on again, off again kind of way that Chris performed this week is – super indicative of the year that he's had. I mean, just kind of looking at the stats right now, his field goal percentage would see when he's within three feet of the basket, it, it's pretty solid. It's 59.7%. And just for comparison's sake, Malcolm Brogdon, who everybody knows is a little bit of a maestro around the basket. He shot 64% within three feet of the basket. So it's not a gigantic difference, but I think what is probably driving people the craziest about Chris this season, and it's totally understandable and is probably you know, a main reason for a lot of the angst about what might happen this coming off season. It's just how inconsistent he seemed to be. And, you know, how much are you worried about that? That kind of goes person to person. For me personally, I'm not super worried about it just because, you know, we have an example of last year in the playoffs where he went, you know, absolutely bonkers for, for wherever, for seven games for the first series. And we have enough 
talent on the team, especially for the first couple rounds of the playoffs, where even if Chris isn't at his, the peak of his powers for whatever reason, you know, if he has two good games out of like five or however that happens to work out, I don't think that's the end of the world. But I think that's definitely something that has been a theme throughout the year. And luckily, because it's been a theme, yeah, it's not great that he's not having the best season of all time, but it's given Coach Bud and the rest of his staff plenty of time to kind of work with other guys and work throughout the system. And as we've discussed previously, this is an offensive system that runs first and foremost through Giannis, and then everybody else is a little bit secondary. I mean, obviously, Chris is the second option, ideally, in the scoring role. Um, but the fact that you have four other guys, at least in the starting unit, and then depending on the bench as well, who can score relatively reliably in their different roles or optimized in their roles to kind of score or be in best scoring positions. Um, I don't think it'll prove to be the like Achilles heel of the entire team, but it is something to keep an eye on and probably something that'll drive people insane in the playoffs. Yeah. And I mean, even it, since the all-star break, he's still shooting, you know, 38% from three. So that's still in line with how he was shooting the majority of the season, other than the seven games in October where he started off as a flamethrower. Um, but his overall field goal percentage has dropped before the all-star break. It was at 43, like 43, 44%. And then it dropped now to 39. So I think that is a contributing factor where he's taking a little bit more of those mid range shots. He's trying to get a little, he's not getting those shots near the rim to fall. Um, so that could be something that to watch just to see if he maybe goes back to trying just shooting threes. But when Milwaukee wins, he's, shooting you know 40 percent, but when they lose he's shooting 30 so that's that's the key thing it's when he's struggling it, the rest of the team is going down but he's not the only one i guess that really is struggling i mean nikola miritich also had a rough night in phoenix and you know he wasn't spectacular in indiana now that changed last night in charlotte so i think maybe he could be someone that potentially is able to turn it around but yeah miritich is someone that i thought you know, he's he's been in a little bit of a slump, and I don't know if that's something that you notice or if it's just maybe him trying to find his legs or if, if it's anything of really of concern. I can't believe we traded Stanley Johnson for this guy. Like, what, oh. what was John Horse thinking? My God. No. <laughs> fire him. Fire horse. <laughs> yeah, horsed out. Hashtag horsed out. No. I think, you know, Miritich, the issue with a lot of the guys on the team is – you know, who is really quote unquote, a dead eye shooter in the NBA these days. Like there's a lot of guys who are, you know, pretty good three point shooters, but there's only a couple of like Steph Curry's out there. So right. part of the risk that this team's takes with its approach on offense and Miritich is part of this Middleton is part of this kind of everybody else who shoots besides Brooke, because Brooke is immune to having any sort of sh shooting slump, except for the occasional like Oh, for six uh, night. But you're playing with fire when you have this kind of five outs, three point heavy system in that if you don't have a lot of surefire shooters and they're struggling, I mean, that's, you, you're going to kind of score in fits and starts throughout a game, you know, and that's counteracted obviously by Giannis being there, but I'm not sure if this is something that portends. I, we've talked about this last week that I don't really believe in the idea that like, oh, we'll just wall Giannis off because you're not really able to wall Giannis off. But say they even throw like three guys at him, there should be enough shooting prowess to be able to get you through. But the fact that you're relying on a lot of guys, all of them are sort of proven shooters. But part of it, the problem with shooters is that they're hot and cold. They just have streaks. And when you know a streak comes at the wrong time, you could catch a bad night and the other team could be hot. And that's just kind of the way things go. And, you know, I think it's not just Miritich. It's not just Middleton. It's, you know, Pat Connaughton has been struggling all season long. Um, Dante, before he came back, was struggling mightily with the shot. Sterling is kind of come and gone, but I think he's also, he's had a pretty solid season. But I think the ruts that we're seeing now is something to be concerned about, but to be expected because of the way these guys play. And it's not like they're not getting open shots because the whole system is designed to get them open shots. So it's just more so will they get hot at the right moment, which is like the peak of basketball analysis, like, Oh, are they going to make their shots? But I think for this team more than a lot of others and outside of Giannis, I think that's an especially true, just kind of maxim. Will they hit their shots? That's going to be the difference maker. Right. Just because out of the players in the rotation, uh, Giannis and Bledsoe are really the only two that, you know, when they take the shot, you're not expecting it. Like Giannis and Bledsoe, they shoot a three. You don't really expect it to go in. So they kind of get more, they're more attacking the rim, but everyone else, you know, Brogdon, Snell, Middleton, Lopez, Miritich, George Hill, when he's healthy, Sterling Brown, when he's healthy, 
all those guys, even Ursan, like all of those guys are people that when they should watch an open three, you expect to go in or and it, even a hand in their face. So, yeah, kind of like what you're saying, when you lean and rely on so many shooters around Giannis, it kind of makes that kind of makes that situation where if one of them is slumping, that's fine if one. But if, you know, you start getting the two, three, four of them to slump, that's a big concern. But I think it's just a matter of timing. You know, if you want to go on a slump now, that's totally fine. Just make sure you're not slumping in a seven-game series in the playoffs. So There's a chance that the entire team got together like, okay, guys, they just agreed. Let's all have really off shooting nights together as a team now. And then we'll just flip the switch in the playoffs. I think that's definitely something that Coach Bud drew up. Well, especially with this team's ability to flip a switch, it's not. I wouldn't rule that out. Yeah. <laughs> like, just take it easy. I mean, just hoist a shot if it goes in. Great. Otherwise, whatever. You already clinched um, a playoff spot. Like, yeah. it's fine. You still <laughs> We're so far ahead of the Raptors right now. It doesn't even really matter if we win or lose. Um, right. No, I think the one kind of fold that was interesting that came away from the Charlotte game last night was the Brooke Lopez option, which uh, for those who weren't able to watch in the third quarter, Brooke Lopez just put in some work against Frank, Frank, the tank Kaminsky. Um, and by work, I mean, down low in the paint. I mean, old fashioned banging with him down there and at pretty much every time down, maybe not every time down, but it, he seemed completely unstoppable just because Kaminsky doesn't have enough size to be able to really contain him. And even though Brooke hasn't played that really interior heavy style of offense for a while, that was his bread and butter for like a decade almost when, you know, when he first came into the league. And so I think he did a lot of that when Giannis wasn't on the floor, even if he was the fact that you get this second guy that's able to exploit the paint in a way that's different from everybody else around. Like a lot of the other guys who score in the paint, a lot of it's kind of cutting motion off the ball, pick and roll, et cetera. Whereas Brooke, I mean, it wasn't exactly like, okay, go post up on the, uh, on the block and we're going to get it to you and just go for it. But it was, you know, kind of similar within that. I think that's an interesting kind of development and we'll see, you know, how much further it goes. Cause it, it depends on just kind of the matchup night to night for the rest of the season. But when somebody who's a little bit lighter, like Kaminsky's thrown in there and if for whatever reason, the outside shot isn't falling, but you have so much space inside, you can kind of just throw it down there and let Brooks gigantic body, get people out of the way. And then, you know, vice versa, if they throw out a big guy, like a Joel Embiid, then we just go back to the style where you just kind of, plant Brooke out on the perimeter and let him shoot a fire away. So I think that was kind of an interesting little thing to keep an eye on. And I don't know how much more they'll use it, but you know, they're continuing to develop different looks on offense, which is always a positive sign this deep into the season. Yeah. And especially with Lopez, like he still has that ability, like you said, to go down low and kind of get that offense going that way. And it's going to be needed to come playoff time. Cause you're going to go against potentially Hassan Whiteside and Andre Drummond Joel Embiid, you know, bigger bodies. Um, but, you know, having that and, you know, with the addition of Paul Gasol, you, it kind of gives your offense a little bit of a different look. So if he's feeling it, just keep feeling it down low until someone's able to stop him. And if no one's able to stop him, then why? Yeah, it was kind of just like a, why would we change what we're doing? It's working. So we're just, let's just keep rolling with it. So yeah, definitely something that I don't know. It's kind of like with switching when Bud decides to switch on defense. I don't think it's going to be something that you're going to expect, but it's something that, you know, every once in a while, it's like, okay, we're just going to do this and catch the team off guard and see how it goes. Yeah. I think too, especially since one of the knocks against Bud supposedly is his inability or supposed inability to be flexible within the course of a playoff series. And even if that flexibility is okay, we have this thing that we did every once in a while, we can kind of utilize that just a little bit more in the game, just to give a different look. I think uh, that's probably pretty promising. We'll just see whether or not he actually does it in the playoffs. Right. Um, one last thing that I kind of want to talk about, about the week that was in, in the week that or weeks, it kind of feels like that's been DJ Wilson free DJ. We've seen the avies, please. Nobody, we don't need to have another wave of <laughs> paints. Uh, like word. Yeah. <laughs> So if you are listening and you already uploaded the hashtag free DJ Avi, we hear you and we're going to broadcast it right here. Kyle, do you agree with the manifesto? Do you want a hashtag free DJ? I don't see why not, you know, especially in that Utah game where, you know, Budenholzer has gone with the Miritich, Ursan kind of four or five lineups. It's not really working defensively. Offensively, it's fine, but defense, it's been not great. And 
you got to go with guys that, you know, I think DJ Wilson, especially in that Phoenix game, he could have brought a little bit more energy. He could have done better with moving around with the Suns, kind of just like frantic, not really sure what you're actually doing style of play. Um, so I think having more DJ Wilson would help. And, you know, I get that maybe you want to try and not overwork him and maybe you just want to ease him in and out of the rotation. But it seems like with the addition of Miritich, it's kind of forced DJ to take more of a bench role. And now with the addition of Paul Gasol, that's going to potentially change. So, you know, Bud's always going to play Ursan, which that's fine. Ursan's been a little inconsistent, but lately he's been fine. I can't complain about Ursan's play, but it's definitely something I want to see if that, if he gets back in the rotation near the end of the year, but it is kind of weird, especially in certain matchups where DJ Wilson would have been a helpful addition, but you know, I'm not going to doubt Budenholzer. He's kind of done the same thing with all the other players, you know, Tony, other than Tony Snell, everyone on the bench has had some kind of stretch where they weren't playing, you know, George Hill kind of had it at the beginning. He wasn't playing as much, but part of that was getting used to the team. Sterling Brown started the season, not really playing much. You know, Dante Duvichenzo started playing a lot and then didn't. Pat Connaughton, he was in the rotation and out of rotation. Now he's back in the rotation, but potentially is getting out of the rotation again with the return of Dante. So I think it's just how Budenholz is going to manage his bench is just change different guys and have different people, you know, come in and out. But it, I would like to see DJ free. I agree with the avatar. I just don't think we need to rehash that avatar. <laughs> so you're saying you're not going to be uploading the avatar after this podcast here? You're not going to put it up? Probably not. Probably um, not. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, I agree with a lot of your general takes. I do not anticipate Budenholzer moving away from Ursan and Miritich just because we're in the final stretch here. And it kind of seems like Ursan is a little bit of a bud guy and We'll see come the playoffs whether or not that faith is well placed or if that kind of ends up hurting. You know, it we've like you said, the Miritich Ursan defensive lineups have been a total garbage fire. It's not great. But you know, in the playoffs, is Budenholzer gonna be willing to go to DJ? I'm not so sure about that. So well, I agree. It would be nice to get DJ some minutes again. Um, I think for a lot of the time that he was out there, he proved that he was capable, at least especially on the defensive end of giving you a, you know, a whole, a whole new burst of energy as it were, but, and I, I don't feel super strongly about it. I think it's a difficult spot for the team to be in kind of going into the off season where DJ flash like, Oh, okay. He might actually be an NBA player and he's already kind of, I think he's extension eligible. So how do you approach that? Maybe they don't even touch it until the following off season after that. But, you know, I, I don't anticipate DJ getting a lot more burn, um, which isn't the end of the world, but we'll see whether or not that holds up in the uh, playoffs as well. So, yeah. But uh, otherwise, I think there's one other guy that needs to be talked about. Everybody's been clamoring for it. It's a real shame Adam isn't here for it. So we're going to try and do justice to this. But ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Dante's Inferno. I think I can be a professional basketball player. Whoosh. I don't know. <laughs> I can't really do a good uh, impression. Well, what, Adam? Of the, edit that yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so, Dante DiGiovincenzo, he is back. It felt like he was gone for, I don't even know, was it two months? months? I yeah, it was months. months. With a heel bursitis, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, which is just, it seems like it's just a sore heel. I'm no doctor, so I'm not even going to get into it. But he is back. He made an appearance uh, against the Indiana Pacers was his return. He played for about eight and a half minutes, scored five points, got two rebounds and assists, and had a insane offensive rebound attempt where he almost died trying to go for it. God bless him. And then he played a much more significant role against the Hornets last night, got 18 minutes off the bench, scored 11 points, went four for seven from the floor, three from six from three, four rebounds, assist, a block, and all of the hustle you could hope for. Kyle, how are you feeling about Dante? I'm so happy he's back. It was kind of funny because <laughs> as soon as Dante was just like suddenly just not playing and then I was like, oh yeah, he's injured. We're like, wait, what? how did he get hurt? Like it just came out of nowhere. I felt like his return also just randomly came out of nowhere. Like Matt Velasquez tweeted, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> okay, cool. D 
Dante's back. This is great. Yeah, the tweet and- that he was back got like so many retweets. I remember too, I was like, I'm so happy about this. It, it was totally out of the blue because he'd just been listed as out. There wasn't even like progression into like probable or day to day. It's just like, I don't know. We're like, okay, and he's ready to roll. Yeah, it's not even like he practiced. It's like, yeah, he's good now. I don't, I don't know how a heel brucitis works or however you pronounce it, but I feel like you should still have gotten some kind of conditioning and before you just go back into game action. But no, he in the Indiana game, he was, I mean, he was fine. Like it wasn't anything spectacular, just kind of Dante just doing stuff, being all over the place, yeah. um, hitting a timely three. And then the Charlotte game was a bit more of an impact. Um, he was one of the first guys off the bench and kind of like what I mentioned is he's getting the playing time over Connaughton. So that's going to be something worth looking at is how much more he's going to get playing time as he gets back from his injury. And to what expense does that mean for Connaughton? But he kind of, he's been one of the first guys off the bench, especially with George Hill out. It's just nice having another guard that can be out there. And for guys like Kemba who Brogdon can't really stay with as much, maybe Dante can try um, plus, we all know Dante is a great performer in the month of March, as we learned last year. So <laughs> I'm excited for it. I'm glad he's shooting the ball better. I think he was like, what, four of nine or f- he was, I think he's like four and nine from three lately. So it looks like his shot has started to come around. So good news at, that Dante's back. And I'm glad that we can actually talk about it for this segment. Yeah, I uh, just kind of going through the stats before his return, uh, just a reminder for everybody, he had been averaging 15.6 minutes, 4.8 points, 2.4 rebounds, 1.2 assists, and his shooting line was 39.3 from the floor overall, a putrid, I mean, awful 24.6 from three, and he was taking quite a number of threes, and then, you know, a pretty solid 81.8 from the uh, free throw line, but I agree that his return couldn't have come at a better time because I am getting pretty tired of watching Pat Connaughton assigned to defend like whatever athletic wing the other team happens to have out there and just constantly losing the guy, you know, kind of in no man's land. And I'm not here to say that Dante is going to fix it or kind of be the cure all for the team on that regard. But one of the things we noted early in the season was, especially on defense, his ability to kind of get around screens, as you were saying there, ends just given the way the scheme works, the drop system, you can never have enough guys who are able to do that effectively. And then just because he's a couple years younger, and I'm not sure if I would be able to say that he's necessarily more athletic than Pat Connaughton, because Connaughton can get up from time to time, but it kind of seems agility wise, maybe it's probably the best way to look at it. It seems like Dante is able to give you a little bit more. And if this new jump shot is here to stay, and I've, I'm no jump shot expert, but I've seen a couple people noting the fact that the way that his releases or his form is a little bit flatter than it used to be. And maybe there's a little bit of speculation that that was occurring because of issues with his heel. But, you know, the one thing that I would kind of point to is, you know, that crazy offensive rebound attempts against Indiana, the fact that he got so high up and he was willing to kind of launch into a pile of people and try and go for the rebound. It wasn't successful, but I'm not sure if it's necessarily him being cautious with his heel more. So there might've been a lot of work while he was out kind of refining that shot because, you know, let's give credit to the coaching staff. I'm sure they saw the fact that it was just not going for him and maybe his form worked for him in the month of March when he was at, uh, where was he? Villanova? Is that where it was? I'm not good with college. He was at Villanova. Yeah. So when he was, yep, maybe, maybe it worked for him then, but you know, you kind of transitioned the NBA game for whatever reason, it doesn't work nearly as well. And you have to kind of fix it, which is not an uncommon thing in the NBA. You kind of get guys. I mean, Giannis is still a work in progress, but I agree that him coming back is an awesome shot in the arm because you know, with Hill and Sterling Brown out for forever and, you know, Dante as well, they were hurting on the wing. I mean, no doubt about it. The rotation was a little bit short and you were probably getting way more content minutes than you ever wanted to get, but you had to do what you had to do. And now you have another option to see, you know, can this guy integrate within the last 16 ish games, however many games are left and be relied upon for a couple spot minutes in the playoffs. I don't know. Um, but there was a sequence last night where a possession, it like, <laughs> it almost got derailed three or four separate occasions, but Dante got up for like three offensive rebound attempts. He was diving on the floor to save it. Uh, I think he saved it from going out of bounds, et cetera, et cetera. So it was like the most typical Dante play ever. And I think it's sequences like that, that get people so excited and, you know, 
there's still probably concerns about his viability long-term as an NBA player uh, and as a contributor, but so far so good just for the two games. And we'll see kind of how it develops over the coming weeks. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be one where all of a sudden he's going to be, you know, a stellar off the bench kind of guy, but he's going to be an improvement over Pat Connaughton. Um, He's going to be someone that you can rely on while Sterling Brown is still, you know, recovering from his injury and George Hill's recovering from his injury. And, it's going to be one of those where I think Budenholzer is going to still be relatively cautious in trying to give him too much minutes too soon. So it'll be something to look for. And I guess the one thing I'm curious about is Dante's probably going to replace Connaughton's minutes. But when Sterling Brown gets back, do you think that's going to you know then reduce Dante's minutes as well, or do you think it's going to kind of be you know Sterling and Dante kind of splitting whatever minutes are remaining for the wing? I don't know. It's so tough to kind of tell from the outside. I mean, one, we still got the Hill injury and, you know, with Sterling as well, besides the fact that he's naming 50 states in 30 seconds, we totally glossed over that. Sorry, everybody, that that happened as well. This it was the most week. impressive thing I've seen. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen it, you have to go, got to go on the Twitter and check it out. I'll probably put it on the Monday morning uh, media roundup as well to check it out. But uh, that was pretty awesome. No, I think it's difficult to tell right now because it seems as we get closer and closer that you know, as we just talked about, even with Urson, Bud might kind of lapse into trusting quote unquote his guys. And I think a lot of people theorize that Dante, while not an explicit Bud draft selection, he had a lot of input, which is, you know, that makes sense. But I think he really is a fan of Dante, which is fine. But if that's the case, is he probably going to, or might he play favorites and kind of hedge that way if he doesn't feel that Sterling's 100% or, you know, I mean, Sterling was a pick under a different coach completely, and he's only gotten to know him this year. And yes, Sterling has played well in a lot of stretches, but are we getting to the point where he might end up, he being Coach Budenholzer, might end up just going with Dante if he's a feels comfortable over these coming weeks with his contributions, just because you were getting a lot of Pat Connaughton minutes and not a lot of them were great. And again, a lot of this depends on, you know, maybe this is the kind of wrist injury that lingers for the rest of the season and Sterling's not even able to come back. If he does, I would assume just given how quickly we've moved up to already like 18 minutes for Dante. And, you know, I can only see that kind of sticking around there, maybe even going up a little bit more depending, but I would assume it goes mostly Dante. I don't have a preference between, between the three. I would rather go Dante or Sterling over Pat, but that's only because Pat's shot has been absolutely broken all season. It seems like. Yeah. I think I would say a healthy Sterling Brown would get my vote. Uh, I just think he's a better defender and a better shooter than the other two. That's true. Um, yep. Dante would still, I, I still love Dante. So I would say giving him maybe like eight or nine minutes and then giving Sterling Brown like 12, you know, around like the 12 to 15 range. I think that's plausible. Um, kind of funny that despite all this, Tony Snell is just quietly holding on to four. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. The quiet, no one's criticized. Like he is just Tony. I think we need to give a shout out to Tony Snell. Just like, flying so under the radar after getting blasted by Bucks fans last year because of his contract and not supposedly living up to it. And this year he's kind of, he's pretty much playing the exact same way and no one's really complaining about it. So I just, I think it's kind of fascinating in that aspect that Tony Sells is flying under the radar. We're not even considering reducing his minutes because a, it doesn't seem like he gets that many minutes, but he's playing well enough that we're not, you know, upset or criticizing it. Yeah, I think Tony is just, he's taking the body of Chris Middleton and he's using it as a meat shield and just to soak up all the ammunition that's being thrown about poor contracts because everybody's agonizing over it. Now, I would agree that it is funny that Tony was a pariah and now I'm not sure if he's like beloved per se. I think that it's probably going a little bit too far, but uh, just the way that his play is, and we've talked about this, you know, even for the past couple of seasons, like how low key is works perfectly with, you know, an offense that doles out a lot of shots to other people. And maybe it didn't work out as well in a starting lineup where there was a lot of usage. Like it, it just didn't mesh all that well because he had a guy who wasn't contributing as much, but now that he's a little bit more integrated into the rotation, I think uh, we should expect Tony Snell to continue to get minutes and probably have a couple big moments in the playoffs just because that would be his just desserts for all the flack he's gotten over the years. So I'd agree. All right. Well, with that, I think we will take a moment here to uh, take a break and we will back. Excuse me. We will be right back in just a minute with a new ad. 
whatever that ad's going to be. <laughs> yes, I can't. I can't hear. Let me note it's five twenty-three. I have to like. Okay. Um. All right. I think that was pretty solid. So we are about ready to hop in to some Sounds playoff good. talk. All right. Go back in a second. All right, and welcome back, everybody. Uh, so part two here, we're going to be looking ahead a little bit. We're expanding our horizon. It's not about the week that is coming, but we will get to that. I wanted to this week, Kyle, talk a little bit about the playoff brackets. Um, we're getting closer and closer and closer to playoff time. And right now, it seems like the Bucks are the prohibitive favorite to retain the top seed in the East and keep on a winning pace. That'll mean they have the top seed in the entire NBA and so home playoff advantage throughout. But I figured as we kind of get closer and as the race heats up, it'd be helpful to look at the standings as it is and kind of evaluate who is an interesting team that you might want to avoid or you want to play in the first rounds, um, just kind of how it would work out. So just so we can work this out again, this is being recorded Sunday afternoon, so the bracket might have changed a little bit. But right now, if the season ended today, the Bucks would be playing the Miami Heat in the first round, and then they would end up playing the winner of the Celtics versus the Phillies, or Phillies, geez, versus the 76ers. Actually, <laughs> um, the Pacers just lost to the Sixers, so as of right now, the Sixers are the three seed. Oh, no, no. Yeah, we're right. just glossing poetics about how good the Pacers were doing, and now I feel like I jinxed them. I'm sorry, Pacer fans. Well, it was, you know, the Bucks were part of the problem since they gave them another L this week, so really... We can't be too upset because it came at uh, at our gain. But all right, well then, in that case, they will play the winner of the Cel or of the Celtics versus the Pacers. I'm doing this on the fly. And then, if they get to the Eastern Conference Finals, they would play anybody of Toronto, Boston, Orlando, or Brooklyn. Or is it Orlando? I think it might be Orlando. Uh, no, Detroit. Oh, <laughs> maybe. I think there's Detroit. Really, it could change a lot of different ways. But looking at you know the East in general. Is there any team in particular, especially in the first round, because obviously second round and beyond that kind of gets a little bit hairy, but is, are there any of those bottom tier teams that you're looking to avoid in particular? Or are you pretty confident that the Bucks will dispatch any of them? I mean, I'm pretty confident the Bucks will dispatch any of them. I'd say the most annoying would probably be the Hornets. Um, I, don't, I think that one would maybe go six at most. Just because I feel like Charlotte has the ability to go small, and that's giving Milwaukee fits. And I'm, I'm going to assume the Charlotte crowd would be very, very loud. And Kemba, you know, Kemba thrives and wants that spotlight. So I think he'd bring his game to another level. Um, so I guess Charlotte would be the team that I'd rather not see. I'm still confident, but, you know, Miami, they're not that talented. It just seems like Milwaukee has always struggled with Miami, but... I think that could change the next couple weeks, especially I think Milwaukee plays them next. Yeah, I think they play them next week. Um, and I, and that's one where, you know, Brooke Lopez can shoot Hassan Whiteside off the floor. And that takes one advantage that Miami does have is a solid rim protector. Uh, Brooklyn is one of those. Brooklyn's kind of like a Milwaukee team in which they rely on a lot of shooting. So when the shots aren't falling, that's when they struggle and they don't have as much talent. I'd ideally want to see the Bucks play the Detroit Pistons because I think the Pistons are bad and they're not good, but they've been on a hot streak. I think they won like five in a row. Yeah. So they jumped up all the way to the sixth seed and have a comfortable like three and a half game lead over the eighth seed. So I don't think um I don't think Detroit's gonna fall to that position, but I that would be the team I'd want the Bucks to face. Orlando isn't that good. It, it would just be ugly basketball if Orlando yeah. had the eighth seed. It just wouldn't it wouldn't even be good. It'd just be ugly. So, yeah, I think um, I would <laughs> I would totally forgot about Detroit, and I'm not sure if I want to face playoff Thon. Do you really want to take that a, is a threat? <laughs> playoff Thon is dangerous, but do we really know. want to chance it with playoff Thon? Plus, he's playing against his old team that he requested a trade from. I mean, that's that's so many storylines coming together. But he might try and do too much. You never. Know. <laughs> <laughs> and by to do too much, we mean fumble the ball out of bounds with nobody covering him. Sorry, Thon, I had to do it. No, I think of all the teams kind of looking at the standings right now, I, I want nothing to do with Miami just because the main issue is Johnson plays Giannis really tight every single time they go down there. And for I think 
that Bud is a top tier coach, no doubt about it. But Eric Spolstra is kind of the same. And while I don't think he has enough tools to be able to get his way out of it, I, I could see him, you know, making some sort of adjustments to make a what could be a first round sweep into something a little bit longer. And while I have confidence in the Bucks to be able to kind of hold up physically throughout the playoffs, ideally you want to, you know, knock people out as quickly as you can. So I think what I'm looking for is the series that'll end the quickest. And I don't know who that would be amongst the bottom four. I mean, the Bucks have beaten pretty much all of them resoundingly. I think they still have two games against the Heat to go this season, but they won the season series against the Magic, against the Hornets. I believe, I don't know if we play Brooklyn again this year. I don't think so. Okay. Then I, th- I believe they probably won that series as well, and the same with Detroit. So pretty much everybody has gotten manhandled by the Bucks so far, but all of them are interesting just because they're going to have a lot of interesting storylines, which is the plus because I don't know if they ever put the one seed, eight seed on like NBA TV, but you could argue like, oh, Detroit has this really hot streak, come, hot winning streak coming in. Brooklyn is like the team that was awful and awful and awful for season after season. And now they're here. They're in the playoffs. That's exciting. Miami, maybe not so much. Uh, that, that might be a team that's not nearly as interesting. Orlando, kind of the same thing that you got. If it's job. Orlando, that is absolutely going to be on NBA that's TV. <laughs> There is no debate about that. How dare you disrespect the Orlando TV market? They are not that good. <laughs> no, yeah, it would. I guess Orlando would probably be the quickest. I mean, yeah, they're not great. It's. It, I mean, all credit to them for somehow winning 31 games so far this season. But I agree. And Charlotte, the Kemba angle is there, but even then, I mean, uh, I don't know. It. I'm not sure if they're really gigantic NBA fans in Charlotte. I could be totally wrong. I'm guessing that right off the top of my head, but well. I mean, it, Charlotte has Charlotte's done pretty well at home. Like they're 21 and 14 at home. They're just terrible on the road. They've only won like nine games. And that's worse than that's worse than, you know, even Atlanta, Chicago. And Miami's a better road team than a home team, apparently. So those are two weird statistics there. Like I didn't expect like I figured Charlotte would be tough, but I didn't think they were that much better at home than on the road, which is why I think they would steal like a game three or like probably game four when their backs are against the wall. Yeah. And we saw it even just last night. I mean, each of the three games that they've played, the Hornets have been, you know, pretty tight affairs. I mean, the final scores wouldn't really reflect that. Cause I think there was two games where the bucks kind of ran away with it in the second half, but you know, the very first game of the season, I mean, it was all the way to the final possession and then the bucks ended up dropping one to the Hornets as well. And just the way that Campbell plays and how explosive he can be. And just kind of, even for it was it's so interesting that from the very start of the season it was like okay the way that Kemba broke the Bucks defense is like the blueprint for other teams to try and copy so it'd be fascinating to see can he do that I doubt he'd be able to do it four games in a way that would allow them to somehow topple the Bucks but I think that would be an interesting challenge and you plus you kind of have the upside of you know you've played these guys in really competitive games throughout the season so does that help keep the bucks locked in and that it's a team that you can't really just like dismiss. Like you've had, you know, tight experiences. Uh, this is all kind of probably moot points. Cause whoever the eight seed happens to be, will probably end up getting swept. But I think it's interesting to just kind of get a look at it because there's still a lot of movement that could happen. I mean, the difference between Miami, Orlando and Charlotte for the eight seed is a total of one game between the three of them. So it could shift around quite a bit, but I, I just thought it was interesting kind of look ahead, see what the playoff bracket looks like. And then, you know, it's it's so crazy at the top between three, four, and five seeds that that could also shift so much that I, I don't really feel comfortable talking too in depth about that. But that'll probably be something we jump into a little bit further as the picture gets a little clearer. But yeah, playoffs right around the corner. It's uh, crazy how fast this season has gone by. But it's been yeah, it's like a month away, which is kind of it's a weird feeling. Like it's a month away, and it seems far away at the but at the same time, it's you know what twenty something games not even 20, like 16 games, I think, or something like that. It's just, it's under 20 games, and it's like, oh, wow, that's that's going to come up and sneak up on everyone pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I think, what do they have, 66 games? So, they yeah, they do have 16 games left. The Bucks are currently 50 and 16. Kyle, do you think they break 60 wins for the season? I'm, I go back and forth. I don't know, just because I feel like they may kind of, once they, it depends on how Toronto does. If they're still, if Toronto's still within, you know, two, three games, I think they still 
they get the sixty because then they. I mean, I think they will. They don't really play that many tough teams. The like they play Philly twice. Oh, they actually played Brooklyn twice. Didn't realize that. But, oh, okay, take back everything we said earlier. No problem there. Yeah. So I mean, so they played Philly twice. They played Brooklyn twice. Those games might be interesting, but they play you know the Hawks twice. They play Cleveland twice. They play the Lakers. So it's not like they're playing that many good teams. Um, the only tough, like the toughest games they have are Philly, Houston, um, and that last game against Oklahoma City, in which they might decide we're not even going to bother trying. So I think I think they can get to sixty wins, which is a weird feeling because I didn't I did not expect it going into the season, but yeah, I, I think sixty wins is doable for them. Yeah, I think you're probably about right. I mean, going ten and six over the final ten games, you're right that a lot of it depends on you know, just kind of the way the rest of the playoff picture works out. I'm interested to see because Toronto, they have the second easiest schedule remaining. The toughest games they have left to play are two against the Thunder, a Detroit game, and then a game against the Nets. And the Bucks still have two games against the Sixers, a Rockets game, a Thunder game, a Clippers game, and the San Antonio game later today. Um, and the Bucks have the 22nd toughest, so that would be the eighth easiest schedule remaining. So both of them, not the most challenging schedule ahead, but... I agree that getting 60 wins is definitely within the realm of possibility. I'd be shocked if they didn't did didn't do it. Um, but either way, I mean, again, crazy season. I like you said, I I could never have imagined that the team would play this well and have had this good of a year. So um, it's just as we kind of get closer, it'll be a combination of looking back on the season that was, appreciating it for what it was, and. We'll kind of see how the playoffs work out. I think it'll be a, uh, an interesting kind of test. I, if we can get through the first rounds, I, I hope that's kind of in the cards, but it, it's just crazy that that's such a within reach that I would never have guessed that would have been the case, you know, before the season even started. Yeah, it's, I mean, going out of the first round, I expected, I expected them to get to the Easter Conference Finals. It's going to be tough, especially with, you know, potentially playing one of Boston, Philly, or Indy. I mean, all three of those teams are very tough, and then you still have to get to Toronto. So it's going to be, you know, a slugfest, but I still expect the Bucs to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. I feel like I would put money on them winning the Eastern Conference. So it's, yeah, it's kind of wild times. Um, as more people have bought in and more people, I, I think a lot of people are starting to realize this team can actually do something. This isn't, you know, smoke mirrors. I don't think they're a good regular season team. I think they're like a great regular season team and a team that can make a run. Yeah. And that's why talking about stuff like, you know, the end of the rotation guys is so critical because I think you and I agree. And I think a lot of other people agree that the chance for a championship season is like within their grasp. Like if things work out the right way and they play the right way, it's definitely right there. So I mean, a lot of the stuff about like, is it going to be Dante, Pat, Sterling, or like, you know, how is Miritich doing? Or it kind of inane details like that. It all adds up. And, you know, that's why you have to talk about it because it's right there for you to get to the finals and potentially do it all, which would be absolutely crazy. But before we get to the finals, uh, it's helpful to do as we usually do and take a look at the week that is coming. Uh, like we said, the San Antonio game going on tonight, but they are on the road and they will continue to be on the road for the next coming three games this week. They start on Tuesday. They will be heading to New Orleans to play the Pelicans. Uh, and then on Friday, they will head to Miami. Uh, unfortunately, that's going to be Thursday night, Miami uh, nightlife undefeated. So we'll see how that one goes. And then Sunday, I believe they return to Milwaukee uh, to play host to the Philadelphia 76ers. Cal, you are a perpetual optimist. Is it safe to say that you are going to be optimistic this coming week? I'm, I'm going to say two and one. Um, I think they beat the Pelicans. Uh, even if they had Anthony Davis play, <laughs> I would still pick them to beat the Pelicans. Um, I'm going back and forth with Miami. It's like they're flying into Miami. Like they're probably flying like Wednesday, maybe early Thursday. So you have that Miami nightlife on a Thursday and Miami nightlife on a Thursday. It's still high quality and will set you up for failure. <laughs> so I'm going to say they lose to Miami and then they beat Philly at home. Um, St. Patrick's day. It'll be, it'll be loud. It's the atmosphere. Um, I will be at that game. So I'm excited for that. And Are you going to be partaking in green beer consumption? Um, probably not. I've kind of gotten past doing the whole green beer thing. Okay. And I still have to drive back to Madison 
that same day. And yeah, I think between the I'm too old for green beer, I'll probably get dinner with my parents after and I have to drive back to Madison. It'll be a relatively Okay. <laughs> I'm assuming like the green dye cannot be good for your stomach lining, especially if you're consuming a ton of it in one day. I mean, but what do I know? No. Um, I haven't done it in like six years. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think I've maybe had like one in my lifetime and one was plenty enough for me. Um, yeah. No, I would probably go. Ah, who cares? I'm going to go three and no, come on, let's do it. We can have a perfect week. I would normally agree that the concerns about the Thursday night Miami nightlife is an issue, but here's what I'm hoping. If the Bucks have a top tier travel agent, they're going to be leaving New Orleans right away. Or uh, I guess I didn't consider they could do, uh, uh, is it Easy Street? What is it in New Orleans? Why am I drawing a blank? Not Easy Street. Yeah, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Maybe Kyle will remember, but maybe they stay in, in Tuesday night for hitting the clubs there. But let's say they get to Miami Wednesday, they hit the clubs Wednesday night, and then Thursday, I haven't looked at the weather, but let's just assume it's going to be fantastic. Bourbon Street. Bourbon Bur- Street. <laughs> Everybody's screaming at us right now through the podcast. <laughs> Bourbon Street, man. At least it's not Mardi Gras. That would have been a terrible combo if oh, it was last no. week they were there. <laughs> Thank you, NBA schedule makers, for that. No, I, I'd say they get in Wednesday, they get their licks in Wednesday night, and then you sweat the alcohol out of the system Thursday on the beach, you relax, and then Friday night you get in and you win and you head home. So I'm going to guess 3-0, and and they have to beat the 76ers because they just have to do it. There's no other choice, if only because I need them to back up a lot of the trash talking I do on Twitter about <laughs> the Sixers and all the takes I have about them. So if the books honor me as a fan they will go ahead and they will beat the sixers um but yes i think it's going to be three in a week what would you think uh adam would say looking at this lineup here i think adam would give it hmm. i feel like adam's been more optimistic lately so i think he'd also say three and oh really yeah you're probably right i think plus he need i think i think they need to beat philly so that they can go into work and just rub it in everyone's face yeah, that's true. I can't tell it. Uh, you know, uh, this is between you and me, Kyle, and everybody who listens to the podcast. But <laughs> do you think Adam has any sort of secret sympathy for the Sixers? Because you know, just in my conversations, yeah, it, nothing serious. But it kind of seems like maybe he has three or four Jimmy Butler jerseys in his closet. I mean, uh, you know, this is all speculation on my part. But you know, I think he doesn't have the level of vitriol towards the Sixers as you and I do. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you put them on blast all the time. I've already <laughs> called them peasants. So we're <laughs> definitely just not Sixers fans. I, I don't know. I think Adam living in Philly, he may he may have busted out an old Tobias Harris jersey from when he was in Milwaukee. <laughs> I think that's what he's got in his closet right now. He's going to wear it just so he can show that he's supporting the player, but it's going to be a Bucks jersey. So I think Adam's going to just quietly just have a Tobias Harris jersey ready to go. Okay, that's understandable. All right, Adam, good luck at the game. I hope you're able. Oh wait, you're, it's going to be in Philadelphia, never or uh, in Milwaukee. So. so I'll be at the game. Yeah, you'll be at the game. Never Talking mind. Talking all the noise. Please do, and you're going to be in good hands too with everybody else around you. So Adam, enjoy the game from home. I hope you have your Tobias Harris jersey ready to go and you have your pals <laughs> over. Um, but like we said, I'm going three and zero. Adam, we're assuming you're going three and zero. Kyle with the two and one. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the end of another Brew Hoop podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, I believe the spiel usually goes something like rate and review, uh, five stars. If it's anything less than that, don't bother. Uh, just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, we thank you guys for listening. Uh, and we will be back next week at around this time. And we will see you guys then. Woo! streets of old Milwaukee was a young boy walking